You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So God has something to say in this text specifically about trust. And um, for those of you who don't know me, my wife, uh, Kimberly, and I have two little girls, Abigail and Penelope, they're three and one. Uh, respectively, and something that I've noticed more and more in being a parent um, is the amount of trust that, that Abigail and Penelope give Kimberly and give me. And it's, it's staggering still to this day that they believe everything that we tell them. Um, it's really powerful to, to have Abby sitting next to me and, and asking me what certain things are, looking out the window and seeing something and saying, Daddy, what is that? And I say, that's a, that's a school bus. And I know that in my mind, just with sort of a, a twisted sense of humor, I'm sometimes tempted to tell her that it's something else. <laughs> what is that? That's a barracuda. <laughs> Luckily, I haven't done too much of that. <laughs> but they are tangible evidence. Abigail and Penelope are tangible evidence that it's a wonderfully freeing thing to trust. When I'm swinging either one of them around in my arms in this kind of human tilt-a-whirl, I see this joy in their faces. They're completely unafraid. I know if Kimberly's there, she's thinking about what hospitals are closest and you know, sort of puncture wounds or you know, Ben Todd, that's a good place to go. And, but for Abigail and for Penny, they're completely at ease. They're not worried, they're not afraid. They're completely content. See, trust gives way to so much life for them. I see in them real rest and joy and peace and this sort of quietness of soul. And I know that we want that too, to trust in a way that allows us to rest, to free us up to live life in real rest and real peace and in real joy. But within trust, there is a tension because it's hard to come by and it's very easy to lose. And yet we know that when we have it, there is an ease to living, there is an ease to loving, there is an ease to working. And it's what Paul is encouraging Timothy to pass on the church in this portion of this letter. I think just before we really get into the text, a few things I want to draw your attention to, just so you know that we are in chapter 2. 1 Timothy was written about 30 years, roughly about 30 years after Jesus' death. Paul was writing to the church in the city of Ephesus, he's writing to Timothy, who was at the church in Ephesus. And he's addressing this urgent need within the church, specifically concerning false teaching. So the reason for Paul's letter is that he hears that all this false teaching is going on, and he says, I, I need, to, I need to, to bring them back to what was originally taught. And so he sends this letter. And people were falling falling away from the central teaching of Jesus' death and resurrection, and they were falling into this sort of speculative, what, what justifies a person? What saves a person? And they were making claims as to what that was. And ultimately, they were trusting the wrong thing. So today, what we're looking at is really three things this morning. The call to trust, Jesus, the one who trusted, and trusting in Christ. So first, the call to trust. In verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, this then, 
really is important because Paul, what Paul is going to tell us is in light of what he told us already in 1 Timothy, the first chapter. So first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So if you, if you glance back at 1 Timothy 1, you'll see why Paul starts here, why this is the first bit of instruction that he gives. So because of this pervasive false teaching, because people are teaching what's incorrect, because our aim as the church is to love and live with a good conscience and sincere faith, because grace and mercy are available to anyone, regardless of their past, regardless of their pedigree, I want you to pray. It's the first thing I want you to do is I want you to pray. I want you to pray for all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, even the ones with which you may have the most contention, even those those kings, governors, administrators, those that are over you, those that are over this city, those that are over even this church, I plead with you. I urge you, please pray for yourselves, pray for one another, pray for those outside the church, and thank God for everyone. Now, it may seem that this isn't necessarily the first response that the Ephesian church should exercise, but let's think about it. The people of Ephesus were caught up in lies and myths. It says discussions of self, just selfish, self-centered discussions. They were looking at genealogies and essentially looking back and saying, well, my father's father was this kind of man, and so this is a good line. I'm in a, I come from good stock, and that's what justifies me is my, is my family, is my history. But it was all incorrect teaching, but all of it was, was operating in hopes that they could, could form and build something that they could stand on, that they could trust, some kind of truth, some kind of reality. But Paul said that all of these lies, all of these myths, all of these endless genealogies and discussions of self lead only to speculation, essentially just forming ideas around something for which we have no evidence. And that's why he says this is a dire situation. This isn't just... Ah, that's a bad thing. No, this is really, really bad. People are being pulled away from the truth. So please, because people are praying, are, are, are looking for the truth, pray for them. Pray for them. And verse three gives us some insight as to why. This is good to pray. This is good because it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So why pray? Because God wants people to find salvation and know the truth. Paul says, and he tells the church, pray for everyone who's caught up in myth and lie. Pray for one another that we all might come to know the truth and trust God who saves. And what's the result of this? I love that Paul gives us essentially what this, what this ends up as. As we fight for the truth, as we pray for one another, as we Proclaim the truth of God who saves. This is what happens. Verse two, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The word for quiet here has nothing to do with volume. It has nothing to do with loudness. It doesn't mean silence. It means a contentment of soul. 
a quietness of soul. You know, or you have been that person. You know people or you have been that person who's just constantly worried, constantly anxious, constantly discontent. This isn't good enough. I'm sad about this. I'm worried about this. I'm anxious about this. That's not quietness of soul. But Paul is encouraging. What he's pointing to is here. Here's the call to trust so that we will all live in this quietness of soul, dignified and godly together, knowing the truth. So Paul is saying that the deep trust that we need, it's available. What we desire, that trust to find, to anchor our trust somewhere, it's possible. And his call to the church at Ephesus and his call to us is to place our trust in God himself as the best, most gracious, strongest, prevailing, saving authority in all existence. I've got to say that, see, Paul is telling us we're, we're built for this. It's not something that we have to that we have to sort of like we have to put walls around or we have to put guards around. No, we we need we need to trust. We're built for it. And when we trust in something, what we're doing is we are entrusting our lives to something. Whether it's job security or job enjoyment, or our marriages or friendships or children or health or appearance or personality, our our capacities to be able to think or to be able to, to do or to, to feel anything. Or even maybe the trust that we find in, in a hypothetical future of when my life gets here, man, that's when it's really going to take off. That's when I'll really know peace and, and joy is when A happens, when I get married, when I have a child, when I get that job, when I make this much money, when I have this kind of life, when I meet this kind of person, or maybe, instead of searching for that trust in that way, what we do is we, we kind of go the opposite direction and we, and we just sit in a foxhole because we've been so hurt and wounded so consistently by people and life and circumstances that we're done. And we just set up defenses and kind of wait life out, just trusting our own instincts not to trust. But here's the reality is that no one fails to trust. Even if you say, I don't trust anyone and I can't trust anything, you're still trusting. It's just in your distrust. You're putting all of your chips in. I know, I know who to trust and it's me. Graham Greene, a wonderful author, said once that to not trust is like being imprisoned in yourself. And he said, that is the worst cell of all. So what Paul is talking about is a trust that's freeing, that frees us, frees us to live in that peace. But things, but we have to acknowledge that things and circumstances and people just break down, and as a result, our trust crumbles. Everything and everyone has failed you at one time or another. Most often, we don't even know that we're trusting that particular thing to come through for us until it's threatened or it's taken. And that has happened to all of us. You lose a job or a position in which you anchored your identity. Who, who, who are you now? You find out during the first year of marriage how much trust you've placed in your spouse to be a particular person for you. But now... They're failing you in areas where you really needed them to be perfect. Where, where, does, where does my trust go now? 
you placed so much trust in being this positive person. This is, this is who I am. This is the kind of worldview I have and the outlook I have on this kind of person, but now you're sitting in depression. Or you just live and die by daily, monthly, yearly life circumstances, hoping that someday you'll turn this proverbial corner and, and it'll just be different, but that day hasn't come. And because life is in constant flux, so is your worry, so is your anxiety, so is your trust. But even if we hold up in the foxhole, we can't even trust ourselves completely because it, it never leads to a quietness of soul and joy. It either leads to cynicism, where we're constantly just skeptical of everything, or a life of just complete naiveness, where we're constantly, how could this happen? How could this fail? The Bible says, no, you don't have to end up in either of those camps. Martin Luther said famously that the sin underneath all of our sin is distrust, that our human response most of the time is to take matters into our own hands. But the Bible says that this sin goes back to where the world began. It says that this was, this was the original sin, that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's authority in the garden, that order and trust were completely disrupted because we desired to place our trust in someone else, something else, to dethrone God and to take matters into our own hands. And in this world, that's what we're living out every day this foundational problem of distrust. And in time, or through disappointment, the trust that we so desperately want continues to just crush everything that we put it in and on. So what Paul is asking us to do is simply this, to trust God. That's why we pray. We're putting all of our trust in him. But in our humanness, just in our own hearts, we find that that's, almost impossible to do, to just will ourselves into trust. And that's why Jesus, the one who trusted, is so important. Because there is someone who did what Paul is calling us to do. There is someone who did trust in the way that we can't seem to. And the Bible says that Jesus was a man who consistently and repeatedly placed trust in God the Father, living the perfect life, living a sinless life. Let's just listen to a few things that he said while he was alive. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. My teaching is not mine, but, but it is his who sent me. I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. For I have not spoken of my own authority. The Father has given me the command what to say. The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me does his work. So listen to the amount of trust in that. This is what Jesus says. What I have isn't mine. It belongs to the Father. Everything I'm telling you, the Father is saying it. These aren't my words. They're God's words. I didn't decide to come on my own. God sent me. I'm obeying. I'm submitting. I'm not autonomous. God is at work in me and through me. Now, it's one thing, it's one thing to trust when things are good. It, it's very easy to trust when things are wonderful. Money's in the bank. Job is great. Relationships are good. Man, that's, that's, that's like flying at such a high altitude. You don't feel any turbulence. But it's something much different 
to trust when things are absolutely the opposite. And Jesus trusted the Father willingly in the midst of his greatest sufferings. And that's probably what distinguishes him most, is that when things were the hardest, his trust ran the deepest. So let's do something, and I think it would be good, just an interesting sort of, this kind of comparison to look at the manner of distrust exercised by man in Scripture and the manner of trust exercised by Jesus during his darkest moments. We'll just look at three snapshots. Consider the book of, if we just consider the book of Exodus, when Moses led the nation of Israel out of slavery into the wilderness, out of a brutal, brutal slavery that lasted for 430 years, generation after generation were put underneath death and lack of food and mistreatment for years, decades and decades and decades. This went on. And after God miraculously parts the Red Sea, brings them through, destroys their enemies, promises them this new land, they say, it would have been better if we had died in Egypt. At least there we had plenty of food. But you brought us out here, God, to starve us. God, you have no ability to nourish us. Now, if we take that and we compare that to when Jesus was led out into the desert, into the wilderness, for 40 days with no food. He was tempted by the devil who said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus said, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I trust God for my nourishment. See, the, the people of Israel were saying, God, you, you can't nourish us. We have to take this into our own hands. And Jesus says, I'm not going to take these rocks and change them. I am living off of God himself. It's a God who's trusted himself, Jesus trusting himself to the Father. Or how about in the, in the Garden of Eden, when the devil offered us the chance to be like God, to take our identity into our own hands, and we succumbed to that invitation which led to death and sin entering the world. So that's the Garden of Eden. What about the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion and death, when, when his worry overwhelmed him so that it felt like he was dying in the garden, he asked God three times, there's any other way, there's any other way that this can happen. With me not suffering, let it, let it happen. But every request that he made in his three requests, he just ended it with, nevertheless, your will be done. In the garden, we said, not what you want but what I want. In this harmony and perfection, not what you want, but what I want. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, this place of pain and frustration, humiliation and worry, not what I want, but what you want. Or even on the cross itself, as Jesus was suffering, the reaction from the people in front of him was, if, if you are the Son of God, save yourself. Come off the cross and we'll believe in you. Peter recounts that in response, Jesus did not revile in return, that when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly, namely God the Father. See, Jesus did what we couldn't do. He trusted God in every way and entrusted him with everything he was. So why should we pray to God? Why should we entrust our lives to him? Why can we trust him? Verse 5. Because there is one God, 
There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension proved himself to be the most trustworthy mediator between all mankind and God. And I'll paraphrase Paul's words in the in book of Romans. Almost no one would choose to die to save a righteous person. Perhaps if they themselves were a good person, they might do it. But true loving sacrifice is this, a righteous person gladly choosing to die to save a wicked person. And that's what Jesus did. That's a savior that the whole world can trust because he has trusted in the midst of greatest sorrow and greatest humiliation. Can a savior who has never known loneliness really identify with every person in the world? Can a savior who's never known friends to turn on them, to leave them, for people to hate him? If, if Jesus doesn't know that, then he can't sympathize. He can't empathize. But that's what makes him a wonderful savior is because he felt brokenness. He felt loneliness. He experienced pain. He experienced humiliation. See, that means that when we experience sorrow and humiliation and pain, that we have a friend who knows what this is like on an unmeasurable level. But see, that when Christ did give his life and ransom for ours and proved that he was worthy of our trust and purchasing our sin and giving us eternal life, there was something even 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 exceedingly wonderful that he did. He gave us his spirit. And so now by his spirit that indwells us that have trusted him and trusted his sacrifice, we can live in this trust that we're called to. We can live this out in the everyday as a family in the world. You see, Paul tells us what this looks like in verses eight through 15. And this is going to be the longest point, but this is where we're going to close. Now, the passage that we're going to read right now has, has portions that have been sources of tension for many for a very long time. Many of you have been hurt by this text. Many of you have been confused by this text. Many of you are still hurting currently over this text. And I want to be sensitive to that. I don't just want to plow through this like it's just some, some other... Um, just some other truth that we need to submit to, but something that we need to understand. Now, there are a few camps that take parts of this text to an extreme. I can tell you that sojourn is a body, sojourn is a collective, that will land somewhere other than the extreme. So let's, let's just jump right in. I desire then, the then is important. I desire then. Why is that there? Because he just gave us the gospel. Christ came the mediator between God and men ransomed himself for all, that all might be saved. So I desire, because of that reality, this is what I want you to do, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The use of likewise here is terribly important. Terribly important because it says that the heart of Paul's charge is the same for both genders. 
He is addressing men. He is addressing women. To just address women in this context was terribly countercultural. You only addressed men. The women will find out. That's what the culture was. They were treated as cattle. They'll find out. So for him to say, men, I want you to do this. Women, I want you to do this. It gives equal dignity to men and women in the church and in Christ. So the use of likewise, while Paul has specific instruction for both men and women, it's a call for all of us to submit, to pray, to seek modesty, self-control, and good works. So this is what I want you to hear, men in the room. I want you to hear this is what Paul is saying, that men, your identity is in Christ. You have been ransomed from sin, sharing in the inheritance now in Christ. There's nothing left to quarrel over. There's nothing left to fight over in anger. There is no need to lift our hands, to shout, defend, to, to make our mark, to have our status, to prove our point. No, this is, this is Christ himself. He has fought for you. He has defended you. He has justified you. We don't have to raise our hands anymore to justify ourselves. He says, no, now what I want you to do is I want you to raise your hands in prayer and submission. Submit to him. Plead for others. Trust him to sustain you. Trust him to save others who are caught up in lie and myth. There is no need to take matters into your own hands. He's already done that. He has you. And to the women in the room, to the church, your identity is in Christ. And you share in the inheritance with Christ and you have been ransomed to him. There is nothing left to do to make yourselves more beautiful, more acceptable, more wonderful, more cherished. Clothed in Christ, you are now free to walk in humility, to walk in self-control, and to carry out the works that God has placed in your life, has prepared for you to carry out. Your identity is beyond physical appearance. And in Christ, this is who you are. You are spotless, blameless, holy, beautiful, cherished, valuable, expensive. He has already fought for you. There's no need to fight for your identity anymore. He has already accepted you. He delights in you. So submit to him now and plead for others. Trust him to sustain you. Trust him to save others. There's no need for you to take matters into your own hands. He's already done that on the cross. He has you. Rest. Now the rest of this I want to walk through a bit out of order, and it may seem strange, but I'll, be, I'll try to be clear so that, that you can follow my thinking. Let's jump to verse, to verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. These verses illustrate why the entire passage is important and crucial for how we are to live in light of what Jesus has done. If we read verse 13 as only pointing to verses 11 and 12, then we will absolutely have to read verses 11 and 12 as a punishment, and they most certainly are not. Paul 
is talking about what went wrong in the garden because he wants us to consider the order that God created. This verse is not just Adam was first and Eve messed up, so there you have it. It's not that simple. It puts weight on both Adam and Eve and their disobedience. So this is God's order. If we just look at Genesis 1 and 2, this is God's order. Adam was given authority by God and Eve was given as a helpmate. But in the fall, Adam ignored his God-given authority by being absentee when the, when the serpent, when the devil came to tempt Eve, and Eve ignored her God-given role as a helpmate and stepped into a place of authority. So Adam failed to live out the strong but gentle leadership role that he was given, and Eve failed, out, failed to live out the trust and submissive helpmate role that she was given. And what I see Paul doing here is the reason what he is saying is the reason I'm desiring for you to live this way is because it puts back in order what sin disordered in the fall. It's living as Genesis 1 and 2 people to live in his order. It's a call to live in his harmony that God established in Genesis 2 in that peace and rest and dignity and godliness. So with that lens, let's look at verses 11 and 12. We're about to wrap up. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Paul is writing to the church, a living body made up of men and women living together under qualified male eldership. The women in Ephesus most certainly had almost no basic rights and no opportunity for education. And Paul's encouragement for women to learn and grow under the oversight of local male eldership was absolutely countercultural. The let here is not weak. It's not a, yeah, just, you know, let them do that, as if they're children that just need to be sort of let out. It's no, make sure this is happening. Let it be this way. Let it be this way that women are growing and learning and maturing in godliness and holiness and that it's being done quietly, not in silence. Again, the word is the same in verse two, with a contentment of soul with a trust in Christ. The word itself means, in Greek, a steadiness due to divinely inspired calmness. So women, Paul says, learn, grow, mature with a spirit that has been made calm by the sacrifice of Christ. Nothing to fight for, nothing to divide over, nothing to be angry over, but to find peace in Christ. See, true trust quiets the soul. Women of Sojourn, this is for you. This is the encouragement for you. Know the Father, know the Son, know the Spirit. Study the Word, learn about Him, grow in godliness, grow in holiness through the study of His Word, and teach others to do the same. Study biblical text, study theology and be diligent students of the word. Ask him to help you so that the trust, really ask him to help you trust him so that the noise of your soul is replaced by the trust in his faithfulness. And Paul's only parameters really around this in verse 12. Many have taken the words teach and exercise authority as two different words, but Paul is using a Greek, a Greek phrase here called a hendiadus. And what it does is it takes two words and it joins together in a conjunction, making them one phrase. And with that understanding, we can read the words in verse 12 
to teach or to exercise authority over a man as this, to teach with authority over a man. In other words, authoritative teaching. Paul is not prohibiting women from teaching or authority, but authoritative teaching. In many places throughout scripture, we see women exercising gifts of prophecy, exercising gifts of teaching, carrying out the work of the gospel alongside other men, both in Old and New Testament. So we need women and men both. Even though this is specifically for women, we need all people in the church to grow in their knowledge of God and to grow in holiness. And here's how that looks at Sojourn. Here's how that looks on the ground for us. The authority inherent within the office of elder restricts eldership to men, and that's in 1 Timothy 3. And in keeping with the church's historic practice, the Sunday pulpit is Sojourn's primary platform for authoritative teaching. So we reserve the pulpit, therefore, for elders and elders in training. Every other area of teaching outside the pulpit is open to all men and all women who are not elders. So at this moment in the life of Sojourn Montrose, although this does look a little bit different over at Sojourn Heights because there are more avenues currently at Sojourn Heights to teach, at Sojourn Montrose today, that includes, but it will not be limited to, parish leadership. And as the church here at Montrose, if the Lord has for us to continue growing here, then there will be more need for teachers as we grow. And there will be more avenues for teaching as we grow. So men and women of sojourn, teach what is good. Edify women and men in your parishes. And even the larger church, talk to your male and female co-workers. Women, talk to your male co-workers about Christ. Men, talk to your female co-workers about Christ. We need you all. You are invaluable to the Lord and to this church. And this is where we'll close. In verse 15, probably just the most confusing and, and more difficult text. Verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And we could talk about this verse for the rest of the day. And there are many ways that we could go. Many wise people have written about this, both men and women. And there were two interpretations that I found at all compelling, but I, I really, I did land on, on something else in particular. Verse 15 leads us back to where we began once again in a call to trust. So according to Genesis, so let me, let's just walk through this and consider this. According to Genesis, childbearing was part of the glorified order. To have children was not something that happened after the fall. It was something that was part of the glorified, harmonious order and design that God set up in the beginning. But when the fall occurred, childbearing became a curse because it involved tremendous pain. And childbearing after the fall became a sign of the curse. It became a sign of what's broken in this world. Now the words here, saved through childbearing, very important because they're crucial in the overall understanding. Childbirth, we have to make this clear. Childbirth does not save you. Jesus saves you. It's not even the doctrine of Jesus that saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. So childbearing is not salvific. It doesn't put us right before God. 
but the word through is the same in two other scriptures. And I won't go there, but 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5 say this. 1 Corinthians 3 mentions someone who will be saved, but only as through fire. And Hebrews 5 says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered and was made perfect by it, that he actually became the source of eternal salvation. So in my brief study, here's what I'm encouraging us to do and where I'm encouraging us to land. That childbearing is representative of the curse we were left with after the fall. And every man and woman experience it in a way because it is representative of what is broken. It is a shadow of all the brokenness that we know in the hardness of life, in depression, the difficult of work, pain, physical and emotional. But the encouragement here is for those in Christ, Paul is saying that this curse refines us and we are saved through it. God uses it to clean our hearts and our minds and our lives through suffering. Just as Jesus was made obedient through suffering, we will be made obedient and perfect through suffering. The pain we endure in this life is used by God to make us complete. The only only contingent really is this, that we trust to the end. That we trust to the end. And that is a work of God by his spirit as the work of Jesus is applied to our daily souls, is applied daily to our souls. It's not something that we will will ourselves to do. It's a work of God that we submit to and plead for, to continue to trust, to encourage one another, trust him. Trust him, submit to him, lean into him, plead with him. There is nothing left to prove, Sojourn. Through our arguments or our image, all have been proven through Christ. And his resurrection, are, his resurrection, his salvation are available to you. There is your righteousness. There is your life. There is your love. There is your peace. It's him. It's Christ himself. And one day when we see him again, we will never know what it was We'll never remember what it was to distrust. We will see him completely, trust him completely, and live out that quiet, dignified, godly life in full, together as a family. Maybe there are a few of you who don't know if he's trustworthy, and I would just say, will you, will you just step into life with us and just keep asking questions? Just, just let us do us. We would love to have the honor of doing life with you and walking with you as you walk with us. Love you, Sojourn. We pray for us.